0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 204. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me is my usual semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestracelli. Jay, how you doing today? Big giant went over the weekend. I feel good about the giant.
1: Wow. How great was that? It was great. Doing great. That, is, that has carried me through the whole week.
0: Daniel Jones is clearly a false uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. I'm being sarcastic there, but boy, <laughs> what a game by him. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, Look, he's coming into his own. The game against uh, the Vikings, he was, I mean, kind of perfect, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it really goes to the idea of expectations versus – I think he outperformed his expectations. Jay, we are in earnings season. And one of the things, you know, yesterday, as we're recording this on Friday, the 20th, yesterday, the 19th – who came out with earnings. Oh yeah, Netflix. And they reported they reported like, you know, 1.9% revenue growth year over year, quarterly year over year, so Q4 of uh 22 to Q4 of 21. That was the lowest revenue growth going back to I don't know, I have a chart going back to 05. And they really I think they missed on net income or EPS only 12 cents. They added 7 million paid subscribers, but they only grew their, their net paid sub- subscribers. So the amount of people who are paying by about 4% year over year. So they sort of beat and missed at the same time. But Jay, does, does Netflix even matter anymore? I mean, is it still a bellwether?
1: Well, yeah, like that's the thing, right? It, 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 it kind of rose to the market bellwether status when Kramer threw it into the Fang acronym or the Fed whatever you want to call that. And uh, people started, oh yeah, they're they but they no longer are, in my opinion, the the main player in the in the streaming stage. And uh, I, yeah, like their their market cap isn't all that huge in the Nasdaq anymore. To and uh, you know, like, look, it matters. We're all interesting. It's nice that they're early to get you an idea how you know that sector is going to play out. But I wouldn't base you know tech earnings. Uh, for like, you know, the really big ones like Apple, Amazon, Google, I guess you got to throw Nvidia and Tesla in there these days, Microsoft, based on how Netflix is doing. So, you know, it's just one of those things that um, I think it's nice to see it, uh, but it doesn't matter. And listen, I'll tell you this, right? My my son has told me Netflix is dead. And I don't know. I watch it still. I still subscribe. But for him, it's he's like, nah, no one uses that anymore. But I don't know. It seems like seven million new people did last quarter. Uh, but I think it's probably trending down and trending lower in importance. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they forward looking guidance is based on the fact that they're going to stop people from stealing or like, you know, sharing logins in different households and stuff. Like that's, that's not a great business plan. Like, Oh, we're actually just going to enforce what we should have been doing in the first place. That's our growth plan. I don't know, man. I, uh, I like Netflix. I'm a subscriber. I like the shows. You know, I like that. But as a stock, I'm kind of menza menza as its importance.
0: I gotta be honest with you. I think that they have not come out with a lot of compelling content recently. Every once in a while there's something that comes out. But you know, Netflix to me is one of those things, it is cheap enough. It's kind of like a gym membership where it's so cheap that everybody just forgets to cancel. Netflix there's no reason why you can't cancel. You can cancel and come back Then you know, 2 weeks later, it doesn't matter. I'm going to make a prediction though, Jay, and then we'll kind of just think about earnings in general. I think Apple buys Netflix. Netflix has a 150 billion dollar market cap. This is kind of like a off the wall prediction maybe and I have no knowledge of anything obviously. Uh, somebody will will listen to this. Maybe I'll wind up on uh on Bloomberg or something, you know, analysts are Somebody says he's going to buy, uh, you know, Netflix is going to get bought by. They'd have to pay a premium for it. But to me, like if Apple was going to pay in, in the running for the the NFL rights, the Sunday ticket, why wouldn't they take a shot at Netflix and their subscriber base? But I don't know. What, what the heck do I know?
1: I, you're not the first to make that prediction. I think a premium has been in the price for that reason, uh, especially before you know you had you know Disney coming out with their streaming a few years ago which you know was now such a big part of their uh, uh you know their revenue but I, listen it's, I think Netflix has always kind of had that they were the fil- first to build up the the infrastructure but I'm going to I'll push back on you like that's been a chance for a while I think Apple is really careful about their content there's not a lot and I think Netflix takes a different approach which is you know you know put a lot out and if one of them catches fire that's great whether it's a uh, stranger things or a uh, squid game or anything like that that really hit home great but there's you know a lot of content that you know i just don't think would pass the apple sniff maybe apple's a little uh their streaming services uh, i don't know they feel like they're going to be a little more sophisticated i don't know and i know you watch apple right i you do like their shows too so i don't know if you get the same feeling it's just they feel like different content models so who knows Well, the other
0: prediction, as as we're making them right now, I would say Amazon buys AMC at some point. Like it to me, and I don't know if it would it would pass muster with the Justice Department and all that. That's a you know, I don't have any knowledge there, but it's just the idea of they own the MGM library now. uh, Amazon does, and they own different you know properties. To me, like you would have okay. So if you subscribe to Prime, you walk into an AMC and you don't need to talk anybody you just walk through and it knows you're a prime member and you go watch food you're, you go watch movies and then they make it up on food and they can increase the prime membership to me you know that's another uh, wild you know what guess i guess but let, let me transition yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah let me transition Jay, to earnings though cuz we we are in earning season you and i've always said that it really... I mean, earnings matter. If earnings are growing, or as long as they're not faltering too much, the market should you know, take that into account. We are in a little bit of an earnings recession right now. What that means is we look at, let's say, Q1 or Q4 of... Uh, Q3, let's say there, because we don't have Q4, all the data. in Q3 of 22 was less than Q3 of 21. And I think even Q2 was less than 21. And 21 was a ban a year. It looks like Q4 is going to be less than Q4 in, uh, in 21 as well. But, I mean, the market tends to discount this stuff and look forward. So, I don't know. I mean, market or analyst expectations for earnings are coming down, meaning what they expect in the future. And, you know, you take out energy and we've had... Negative year over year growth. I mean, so I don't know, Jay. Any thoughts on just this quote, this what I'm calling an earnings recession? Um, But I think the markets discount that.
1: Yeah. Well, look, we always say there's two things that, you know, the two major things that impact the market it's corporate earnings and it's interest rates. And so when you look at interest, uh, when you look at earnings, sorry, you are correct. The last two quarters, Q2, Q3, earnings have been lower than a year earlier in those quarters. So yeah, I mean, uh, if there is uh, such a thing as noticing an earnings recession, I believe there is, by the way, that's a term that people use. I know you didn't make that up. When you when you when you think about that, uh, this is exactly what the Fed is trying to do, right? Trying to slow down the economy a little bit uh, with raising rates. So they're having some success there. I don't know if it's them. Or, listen, I, I still am hesitant to give the Fed credit for reducing inflation and those kinds of things. But we do know they impact. You know, yield based sectors like the housing market and loans and those kinds of things. So, great. Take all that into account. Uh, earnings are coming down. Earnings are lower. I don't know where Q4 is going to come. It sounds like you're projecting lower uh, earnings for Q4, Derek, based on what do you know, 25% of earnings so far. So, you're making a, a stab at that. You're probably right. I don't think you're wrong. Um, but I'll tell you, Derek, and I, maybe I'm jumping the gun on moving to this topic. When I, when I think about earnings declines, that's something that the market is usually ahead of, right? Like the market will move six months ahead of this, and I mean, that's kind of what it did on the way down. It also moves ahead of it on the way up, right? There's a lot of data that tells us like, yeah, even though the actual earnings are down, you know, the rear view mirror, you show, you know, slowing economy, earnings are down. Looking forward around the bend, now that I've come up with this driving analogy, uh, the market's usually ahead of when that rebound occurs. And so, I don't know, like, where do you think we are in the cycle of the market reacting to these negative earnings year over year?
0: I mean, I think it's already priced in. I mean, look, I mean, we were down, what, 20-something percent at one point. We've come back off the lows and I think where you were going with this, Jay, is that we saw a chart. I think this is LPL Research, Fact Set, Refinitive Data, 1950 to 2022. And what this looks at, and the title of the chart is, Earnings Declines Don't Necessarily Mean Falling Stock Prices. And they looked at the S&P 500 Index Annual Earnings Growth versus Price Performance. And what you find is that when the S&P Annual Earnings Growth is negative, You don't necessarily have negative S&P 500 annual performance, a negative there. It's positive. And in fact, since 1950, only I think about five times, Jay, if I'm looking at this right, were earnings negative and the market negative. And the other times that it's happened, which I didn't count up all the dots, let's just say it's more. Jay, I think this really portrays what you're saying is that the market already knows that Earnings likely are going to be, you know, flat to, to down year over year on these quarters. What it's pricing in is that eventually they'll turn and they'll go higher. And I think that's replicated or represented in the 2024 estimate, which is about 240 a share right now, where right now 2022 is anywhere from 215 to 220. So, Jay, yeah, I mean, this, the data says that market doesn't have to be down if earnings are down.
1: Uh, no. Well, at least not going forward right? Like, that's that's the point. Um, by the way, you, you said there's more on the, you know, growth versus the It's more like a three to one, right? So you've got five times, and actually, Derek, when I look at like, when I'm looking at this data, if earnings are down by more than 5%, only three times has the market been down a year forward. But um, when those earnings are down, you've got like about 12 times that it is actually up, and sometimes up significantly 20, 30%. So you look, the market will jump the gun. By the way, conversely, there's plenty of times where earnings are up and then the market is down the year going forward, which, again, is probably a projection of, you know, hey, things will slow down. Probably exactly what just happened to us in 2022, right? Peaked out in 2021. Earnings were high. Earnings growth was strong. And then you end up having uh, you know, the down market year uh, uh, a year later. Uh, even though earnings were up. So yeah, I look, I think the earnings score is always a rear view mirror um, uh, story. And the market likes to jump the gun on that. The market likes to skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it is today.
0: The thing that breaks down, there's really two two cases here. We'd say, okay, earnings, we already know about what earnings are going to be. And let's say the analysts are correct. And we know that analysts aren't always correct and they they move their their predictions change over time. But the thing that that people making the bear case would, and I'm not saying we're doing that, is that, okay, margins, meaning the net profit margin, you sell a widget for a hundred bucks and it costs you 90 bucks to make the thing. You're making 10 bucks a widget. And so you have a 10% net profit margin, right? All in, all in cost. Well, profit margins have been on the high side and those are actual profit margins. So meaning ones that have been reported over the last, you know, 21, 22 Margins are really high. They've come off the record levels, but analysts still forecast profit margins to be in excess, I think in excess of you know, 10%, maybe in excess of, 20, uh, of 12% in 23. So I don't know, Jay, I mean, this is one of the things where if you were on the bear case, you're sort of saying that profit margins can't stay elevated going forward and that even if revenues increase or stay flat, it's the margins decreasing. I'm a little surprised margins have held up as well as they have, considering we have the inflation, input costs are rising, wages are rising. But Jamin, this is really the the thing that if people on the bear side get wrong and margins hold up, well, earnings could be pretty good.
1: Yep. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on that. I think uh, well, you know, actually, let's let's talk about sentiment, right? And where people are, if we're going to talk about the bears versus the bulls, right now. Sure. And um, that might be an interesting data point to rotate to, if you don't mind, Derek. You've got a little information here around kind of the what happens when you have, you know, kind of extreme bullish and extreme bearish sentiment, right? And I would I would argue that uh, less than one out of ten uh pundits on t v or on it through any media channel are bullish. It feels like they're all bearish with the oh yeah, we're predicting a recession in the second half of the year message points so you know talk us through a little bit of that uh data that you put together there because I think it it plays well into the the risk that the bears have for being wrong versus the risk that the bulls have for being wrong
0: yeah I mean it's the uh the a a i i uh, sentiment survey. And by the way, is just as you said something there, like every analyst is saying there's going to be a recession. Like this is the most obvious recession ever. And it's almost <laughs> like like, you know, it's contrarian, you know, it's to say, oh, I don't think we're going to have a recession. And then you look at the sen- I think this is driving the sentiment though. And I'm glad you brought that up. Cause the what AAII is, they look at individual investors, they survey them. And what they did was they said, well, let's look at the sentiment, uh, bullish sentiment versus bearish sentiment. And bear sentiment is really high right now. It's not quite as high as it was, let's say, March of 2009, which, by the way, was the bottom. But people's bullish sentiment, and this chart goes back to 1988, is the lowest bullish sentiment that's been registered. So, Jay, as a contrarian, you'd say, this is probably pretty good for the markets.
1: I mean, right, when, when the crowd believes one thing, usually the opposite happens. I like to joke and say the market will frustrate uh, the most people that it can, like if the market had a will, which it doesn't, although it feels like it does sometimes, right? The, you know, things that are really counterintuitive uh, can happen uh, in the moment. And then when you look back, things are, oh, yeah, sure, that's obvious. So, yeah, like if you wanted to take a contrarian position, it's hard to find the bull. And uh, you know, there's very few. It's like you said, the lowest on this chart, right back to eighty-eight. This is uh, you haven't had a period of time where you had fewer people with a bullish sentiment, and that in and of itself is uh, you know, it's like the VIX at fifty, right? Fear is at its highest. That's the time you should be buying the market, right? Who who said when there's blood in the streets you should be buying, right? Was it uh, Buffett,
0: right? I think that's Warren Buffett, Buffett, right?
1: Right, so. You know, I'll give him, I guess I'll give him credit for that. He's a pretty smart guy. He
0: might, he might've had, he might have some experience in markets, uh, still yeah, we'll I mean, that Munger guy, maybe give him another 10 years and then we'll see if they know anything. But Jay, I mean, this is, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you look at 2009 though. I mean, it's just, people can't see this chart. What I'm looking at is people were really bearish. Their sentiment was the, not even the highest it's been. It's interesting Look at that bearish sentiment back in 90. We'll get to that in a second. But yeah, I mean, that was the bottom of markets. Like, no, and what we saw, the behavior we saw from investors was really interesting back then because they, they kept them a lot of assets in cash and they remain in cash for a number of years, missing the rebound. And I'm glad you, I'm really glad you, because I hadn't thought about that. Like, if you watch CNBC, what are you going to see well we expect a recession in q2 we expect a recession in the latter half of the year we're different on this because we think it's the la- last half of the year not the first half of the year like if you look at all that but i guess also if you're an analyst for a big investment bank and you like stick your head out on the chopping block and say oh no we're not going to have a recession and we're going to be up you know 15% really then they become tom lee tom lee's that guy who says no we're not going to have a recession we're going to be up it's, I don't know. It's just, I think it's a little bit lazy right now saying we have a recession. That's my contrarian take.
1: Great. I agree. It's a little lazy. And, you know, what value do you provide uh, saying something that everybody else said? I don't know if you're going out on a, on a limb and saying I'm bullish for the year. <laughs> but uh, like, look, it's, that's the thing. It's why we don't time the market, right? It's, it's uh, you have to have strategies that are kind of all weather. You protect, you hedge against the downside in case, you get the big sell-off, but, you, you know, it's it it will be to your detriment to, you know, prevent yourself from participating in the up years, which there are, you know, more up years and down years by, you know, a factor of, you know, three to one. So, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, I, I like seeing this. I think if you're, if you look at the fundamentals on the market, and you mentioned a minute ago, like the bear's that are looking at things like earnings and what they're calling for in this environment. You know, it's hard to look past the fundamentals in the market, right? The market still seems a little expensive from a PE ratio perspective. Uh you you've got the old adage, don't fight the Fed. We know they're still raising rates, they're going to hold them higher for longer, right? Like so from a fundamental perspective, it says Yeah, like we should be cautious here. And I'm not saying, you know, buy the market with both hands right now, but it's it's you have to look past that and you have to say it's always darkest before the dawn. And there will be a time where there's going to be a low that you should be buying. I don't know if we've had it yet or not. If, uh, you know, September, October was it. But, uh, you know, longer term, you need to stay invested in the market. And if you don't get it exactly right, you know, this quarter or next quarter, it will be over time and in uh, probably not even that much time. By
0: the way, I'll just mention that if anyone thinks they should trade off any of these predictions, that's not the case. All you need to do is look at our 2022 predictions we made in December <laughs> of 21. Uh, right. I'll link to the show. We made our 2023 predictions, uh, which I expect to be fully wrong as well. But uh, by the way, you know, as, as Jay mentioned, we do our our core thing we do is buy and hedge. If you want information on that, uh, reach out to me at Derek.more. At zegafinancial.com. That's D E R E K dot M O O R E at Z's and Zebra, E's and Eddie, G's and George, A's and Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly.com. Or if you just want us to cover a topic or have questions, we like hearing from those. A lot of times uh, people suggest topics and we wind up having them in. You know, speaking of being wrong, at the beginning of 2022, one of the hot trades that was recommended by a lot of analysts that said, well, we don't know about US stocks in 22. But we really think this is the time for international or emerging markets. And uh, Mike and I covered, we talked about value investing and how there's these different regimes where growth is the one outperforming on a relative basis. Then it goes to value. Uh, International stocks, I think it's been more than 12 years since they've outperformed large cap U.S. stocks. But Jay, maybe EM and international finally had a little bit of a day in the sun. Who knows if it continues? it's expected though because the dollar has come off its highs against all the major currencies so i don't know i maybe em gets a little run here uh, although it is really china centric
1: yeah and I, I think that's a little it's i by the way was in that camp saying us is still you know going to be the 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 place to be i was there i you know looks like that wasn't uh uh you know strangely enough not the right place you know, you look at Europe, you look at emerging markets, you know, you always, there's all these international currents that kind of impact that. And of course, geopolitical events will do that. Um, you know, raising treasury rates in America actually impacts, you know, the world's rates, uh, whether they want it to impact them or not. And yeah, I was on the wrong side of that trade. I still thought the US was the best place to be. But you look since, like, say, November, we had a conversation about this, right? You look at China's up 50%. Uh, what was uh, the rest of emerging market? Was it 30 on all of EM? Um, what it was, was down, was yeah. Developed I think so, yeah. nations, were they up too, right? EFA, right, that ETF. So you, you look at those, and it's one of the things that nobody wanted to even be close to those countries, and it turns out that was the place you were supposed to be, which just goes back to the contrarian point, right? Like the common knowledge, um, is probably the wrong knowledge.
0: I mean, another obvious area too, I agree. And it's, I mean, look, we, you and I have been doing this long enough to know that when everyone says something, a lot of times it's not the case. Or sometimes it is the case. And look, I mean, as you've made the point again and again, markets over time are up more often than they're not. And on average, the competent annual growth rate, You know, depending upon how many years you put in the study, is some I mean probably right around nine, ten percent over a long period of time, certainly seven, eight, nine ten percent, something like that. Yep. Now, the other obvious place, Jay, I think that people are predicting a total collapse, a two thousand eight like collapse is in home sales. And look, i you and I aren't experts in this market. I'll speak for you. You can speak for yourself in a second, but you know we're we're not uh, looking at this stuff as as closely as, let's say people who are in this business. You know, we're, we're in equities and derivatives and options and things like that. Look, I mean, home sales are down year over year. I think the latest one from the National Association of Realtors, if I'm looking at this graph correctly. Uh, December was down 34% from the year before. November was down 35%. Uh, October was 28%. I mean, you and I have been trading markets in a long time, and there is a bid and an ask price. And right now, I think what people are willing to sell houses at is very high. What people are willing to buy them at or what they can afford when you adjust for the change in the, in the mortgage rates is much lower. And until they meet in the middle, we're not going to see a lot of housing change, but I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I'll, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think this is another 2008. I mean, to me, the, the loan, the, the, uh, Uh, what do you call it? The the credit scores or, you know, all that stuff on borrowers seems to be much better. I mean, what the heck do I know? But I don't know. I think just you're not going to see people move as much if they're in a 30 year mortgage at 3%, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're almost, you're almost kind of stuck in your good deal. Like you can't, you know, you can't rotate out and move when you're going from a, I mean, under 3%. I know plenty of people that have a 2.75, 2.6 2.75, you know, 2.6 rate. And you don't want to go to a 6% rate. Like that takes time to digest, right? That takes time to accept. And that huge, you know, uh real estate wave that we had in 2020, 2021, the, the boom there was driven by lower rates. And you know, I said it earlier, the Fed impacts things like real estate market because of mortgages. And so uh, you know, if you're trying to make the point, and I think you are, that you know, right now the expectations of a seller and the expectations of a of a buyer are very different, and that's going to cause uh, stagnation slash declines in volume. Uh, then I think I think you're totally right there, and it's just going to take a little time for everybody to to realize what it is like. Let's if you weren't forced to move, right? You would say to yourself, "Ah, eh, the market tells me rates will be lower in a year. I'll just wait. I'll wait till I can get a mortgage at four and a half instead of six, because if rates come down, which the expectation over time, and even the Fed says this, rates their target is more like two and a half, three percent that they want to get to. You know, you'll see mortgage rates come down. So, you know, all of you wait, right? And so it's it's human behavior to wait for a little better deal, but in the meantime things kind of dry up, activity dries up, except for those people that are kind of really forced to act. So I don't think you're wrong, but I certainly don't think it's an 08 situation, Derek, like the, you know, collateralization and the valuation of homes over the last few years has been much more rigorous than, you know, the 04 to 07 period, uh, where, gosh, I mean, it's, we lived through that. I mean, how many people did you know that were taking, you know, Hundred twenty percent loans on their property because everybody just assumed you know dirt goes up in value over time, right? And so you found uh, home buyers way too leveraged. The banks didn't do that this time around, right? We have a we had a client, hopefully he's listening today, uh, that uh, sold a house and bought a house, and the house cost eight hundred thousand dollars, but the bank said, well, the comps are five hundred thousand, so you got to come up with the rest. And even though he was you know, going to put down 20% and all that normal stuff, he still had to come up with half the value of the house. And so he he needed a lot of equity that in the past to come up with a lot of cash to actually even get a mortgage, right? He had to come up with essentially 400000 and still had his mortgage. So all that being said is I just, this time is different uh, for sure. That's not an excuse. It really is different. I don't see the leverage and risk in the housing market that we saw, you know, in that period leading up to the OA collapse.
0: That's an interesting example. No, that's that's a good example. I, I was just thinking too. When I'm, so we bought this place in 2015. Our, my last one I bought was in 2001, and I feel like I shat, I had to show them like a W two, and that was it. And the last time, you know, it's you're showing them re, tax returns, multiple years. All I mean, it's just this whole back and forth. It's it's yeah. much more strenuous. One area, and I and I don't know. Maybe somebody listening has more knowledge in this area. I think I saw it might have been KB Holmes or somebody else who said that in the in Q4, and I hope I'm getting this right. I'm looking at my notes. There was a 68% cancellation rate on new builds. So I think what that means is people contracted or put down a deposit. Um, right, Jay? I mean, they put the deposit down and they say, "We well, you know, keep my deposit. I don't want to do the house anymore. Maybe because the mortgage rates went up. I don't know what that means, but that's an interesting side note. Uh, or maybe they found other people.
1: Or, or to your point, they can't sell their existing one for what they thought they could, right? Right. So it's either oh, I don't like the mortgage rates. I'll just give up the deposit. I don't know typically what the deposit is on a on a new build. Uh, that probably varies. And but they probably also can't sell their existing house, right? So I think there's a combination there, Derek. Of you know, but you talked about the bid and S spread between buying and selling houses and, uh, the impact of higher rates. And maybe they're going to wait a little while.
0: Another area to look at, uh, yay, we did it. In I'll call it in that column, the Mannheim U S used vehicle value index. It was negative, meaning, uh, I guess a year over year comparison. They've come all the way back down. Remember used cars went up in price, but what a, what a classic case. Anyone who's, who wants to understand economics. This is a case of a substitute, used cars are a substitute for new cars and new cars were tough to get or the prices went up. So the substitutes went up as well. And I, I knew people telling me that, you know, a car they bought five years ago, they were selling it for more than they paid for. it. That's come all the way down. I don't know if we need to spend any time on that, but it just, yay, we did it. We got used cars down, Jay.
1: Yeah. It's like, uh, we had an inverted curve in the used car world, right? That doesn't happen yeah. very often. That's <laughs> but right. That was, you know, I think you and I would both agree driven by supply constraints, right. Getting, you know, chips to build cars was really difficult to remember all those stories around that. glad to see that that's coming back to normal, right? You should not have to pay more for a used car than a new car. I experienced the same thing. Uh, and I know plenty of other people that, uh, you know, that are our clients that have bought a car in the last couple of years, sometimes forced to buy a car. Uh, You have a car accident and insurance companies were happy to total cars and pay out at, you know, this, this rate. And, you know, you'd still have to come up with twice as much money to replace your car that just got totaled. So it was really uh, like, it was actually hard. Like if, you know, uh, gosh, I, I can't even go into the, the the stories are ridiculous. Of oh, I got in a car accident. It wasn't my fault. But guess what? Now I gotta you know the and the insurance company told the car gave me more than I paid for it. It still wasn't enough to buy the new one as a replacement. Right? It's really you know that hardship needs to go away, and it's good to see that uh, that financial drag, I should say, needs to go away. It's good to see that that's coming back into into normalcy.
0: I still own the Jeep I bought in. I think it was two thousand eight. And I remember I walked into the dealership, you know, in the middle of the financial or, you know, a big part of the financial crisis. And they were so happy to see me. I think I was the only one in there. And my Jeep has a lifetime transmission warranty. Still on the Jeep. Um, that's a good reminder, too. Every five years, you got to take it and get a, a, uh, a, a once-over, you know, at the dealership. But finally, Jay, thinking about giving it a, a once-over to the volatility world. Normally, volatility in equities and FX, so that's currencies, and then bonds. So there's different volatilities. There's a the move index, which is a, a B of A thing that measures the volatility in, in uh, fixed income. J.P. Morgan has an FX volatility index, and then, of course, the VIX. These two, if you look at from the end of 21, sure, volatility was up in equities, but it was way higher in currencies and way higher, the highest in fixed income. No surprise, given where rates were. And but lately, that's been coming down. But there's still a separation in how much more volatility. Meaning the premiums, I would assume, used to to hedge or or, or take positions on those types of underlyings. Jay, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I don't think it's a surprise but it's still pretty wide.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's probably a, a tale of two cities here, right? I think we would argue that equity volatility is lower than you would expect for the amount of bearishness we just talked about earlier, right? You don't expect the VIX to be at a, you know, heck, under 20. It was just under 20, you know, a few days ago, uh, while you have, you know, the most bearishness in the since 1988, right, or since, oh, not... Right. So you wouldn't expect that. And then you've got all this volatility in the in those other asset classes that, you know, are you know not typical. Well, maybe maybe currency, but, you know, certainly in the in the bond world to have this kind of volatility um, seems it's just it's rare. Right. It's, it's rare to see that uh, uh, kind of movement. And so I just I feel like this is another thing that's a little out of whack that um, we probably need that to normalize there's a lot of stuff that has to normalize to get back to normal markets i think that would be definitely a good indicator and when you think about what's driving this it's the my opinion is it's the gap between what the bond market is predicting and what the fed is uh, telling us they're going to do right there is a there's a significant gap between you know with the 10 years trading at what's it uh let me get a real quick uh, uh, price on that. So the ten years trading at, let's just say, three and a half basis points today, right? It's just under that. So three and a half. Yet the Fed is telling us they're going to be over five, right? And that could happen as as soon as a week and a half from now, with the next Fed meeting in the beginning of February. So, you know, there is a real disparity there, and until um, those come in line, I think we'll continue to see volatility in the bond market. Of course, currency is. I don't know if it's the tail that wags the dog just a plain old tale, but it follows along what's going on with the rate volatility. So that's my two cents, right? That needs to kind of bring its way back. VIX on stocks, way too low. And volatility on things like fixed income uh, is high, driven from a disconnect between, you know, Papa Papa Fed and the day-to-day traders that just don't believe what they're telling.
0: Yeah, before I get to recommendations, I'll just mention uh, I was going to spend three hours going over the Japanese uh, government bond market. But Jay, you've told me that we don't have that time. So Jim Grant just pointed out, he he publishes The Interest Rate Observer. Uh, I think he gave an interview and he said, it's kind of goes, I'm using this term. It's the unknown unknowns. You know, there's always something in the market that nobody's watching. And and he's pointing out, we should be watching the uh, Japanese government bond market. The Bank of Japan has let, you know, they keep uh, JGB. Those are the Japanese 10-year uh, bonds. Uh, they allow them in a certain range. They increase the range from a quarter of a point to a half of a point. If it starts to go above that, they go to buy bonds and spend more money. And his point that it is a lot of stuff is levered or intertwined with that. Britain had a bond spike and it kind of uncovered some stuff in the pension. So I'm going to put that in the corner of uh, I'll be watching that. I don't know what to do about that, but I just think it's interesting. But
1: uh, yeah, no, J- listen, I, in you fair, I always tease yeah. you about the obscure um, yeah. things that you bring yeah, yeah. up and, You know, usually uh, when you bring it up, it's something that other people start to bring it up in the future. So while I tease you about those things, I definitely (laughs) uh, I find it interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's really going to what it's going to you know, the impact that that, you know, Japanese bonds are going to have on our markets where most of our stuff is invested. But certainly interesting to watch and to see, you know, if anything, you know, can tip this market into, uh, you know, into another wave of panic.
0: All right, Jay, uh, any recommendations for the audience this week?
1: Yeah, I, uh, listen, I think, uh, I know last week you said football. I would say that again. <laughs> of course, they, they'll um, listen to this later. Gosh, I don't know if I, I might've said this one last week already. Boy, if I'm repeating myself. You I said the menu already, I think. I, well, it's, of course, that was on uh, HBO. You could watch that. Uh, and I think I talked about watching uh, Too Big to Fail and The Big Short also, Good uh, uh, market movies, right? Certainly in this kind of time when there's uh, uh, extra fear. Um, yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't have anything queued up for you this week on recommendations, Derek. It's been, uh, it's been that kind of a week.
0: I have an anti recommendation. I listened to, uh, I listened to, I watched. There's a, a docudrama. It's like four episodes on Spotify, and the first episode I found was pretty interesting. Again, it's a docudrama about. The, the how they had to fight to get the the rights to the music and things like that. But then they did like each episode at the end of the one episode, they're like, oh, that's not how it happened. And then it was the, the co-founder's view. And then it was like a lawyer's view. And then it was like an, an artist's view. Uh, I hate when they repeat everything and they just show different viewpoints. So I don't want to say it's a, it's a don't watch, but I kind of, didn't enjoy it. I am listening though, Jay, to uh Bono from U2's audiobook. And it's just I bring that up because it's I think it's pretty good. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know if you were a U2 fan growing up, but um you know, they were the biggest band in the world and probably in in name regard still still that way. But I'm fascinated that in the audiobook, not only do they have him reading the chapters, but it's more conversational and they have background sort of like noise and fillers and they also have some music that's intertwined so it's really produced it's not just him and i think that's the new way that maybe some high-end audiobooks will wind up being i think uh, malcolm gladwell's done that as well so there you go jay all right we did it under 40 minutes
1: (laughs) i'm Derek. thank you jay
0: thanks for coming on this week again and uh for everyone else we'll talk to you next week see ya